Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Every single time that we've heard of that the Russians reached out to offer something, dirt on Hillary Clinton, access to another trove of emails, secret meetings, back channels, the common theme of every single individual in Trump's orbit was, yes, yes, help us. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I spent my book leave alternatively trying to block out the latest turns in the Trump-Russia investigation and being totally astonished at what was happening. I mean, indictments, Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, people flipping. There was so much more information that, that seemed to me to come out about the extent and nature of Russia's online electioneering. There was Trump admitting he dictated that utterly BS statement about the meeting at Trump Towers. There was Trump stating his pardon power is unlimited and he could pardon himself if he wanted to. And, and then on the other side, on the on the what, what did Putin get out of all this side? Trump continuing to weaken America's ties with NATO allies. Trump entering into an open feud with Canada? Trump betraying South Korea to flatter Kim Jong-un, Trump openly yearning and now and now setting a buddy-buddy summit with Putin. The thing that, that was so striking to me about all this was how far it had actually gone, how much we had now learned, and from afar, how little all of it had mattered. At this point, it is impossible to doubt that Russia intervened in the 2016 election aid Trump. We know that. It is difficult to doubt that the Trump campaign was, at the very least, interested in helping Russia in that endeavor. If they never managed to connect, given how often Russia tried and how often the Trump campaign said, yeah, we'd love to take that meeting. That sounds terrific. It would be an amazing series of missed opportunities. And it is also clear, I think, at this point that under any normal definition of the term, Trump, let's say he obstructed investigations into the matter and certainly lied to the public about it. And yet nothing is happening. People keep waiting for Robert Mueller like he's some deus ex machina to find something like the, the key, the goblet to open the treasure chest, something, release something that somehow triggers consequences. But I, I don't think that's really in Robert Mueller's power in a way that the public conversation has had trouble facing up to. We seem to me to be handing him a responsibility to force political consequence that is actually and, and maybe properly in our – the public's hands or certainly in, in our representatives in Congress's hands. And what if there never are any consequences? What if we learn all of this and more but the fact that the consequences here are political means they are politicized and in a country this politically divided, it means justice never gets done and the lesson in the end is that partisanship overwhelms lawfulness and the president isn't so much above the law as he is separated from the law, protected by a zone of partisanship in which law doesn't really reach unless it is useful for the political party with the power to deploy it. That would be saying something terrible about our political system. But it might also be something true about our political system. Back in January, I had Susan Hennessy, the executive editor of Lawfare, the co-host of its excellent podcast, a Brookings expert, a former NSA lawyer. I had her here to guide me through what we really knew, what we could really say about Trump and Russia. I felt that everything was so minute and it was these complicated bits of breaking news every day and we needed the big picture. And that conversation with Hennessy was still for me the single most helpful thing I have ever done to understand what is going on here and try to see it in the closest thing we have to its totality. So now coming back and trying to catch up on this and trying to understand if what 
I saw and sensed is correct. I asked Susan uh, to return, to offer an update, to tell me what was true now, what the end games might look like, how close we are to those end games. And I'm really glad I did. Um, what she says here to me makes sense, but I would not say it is encouraging. But I think if you listen to her, you get a much better sense of where we really are and what might really happen as Robert Mueller gets closer to the end of this process. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShowAdVox.com with guest requests and more. But all that said, here is Susan Hennessy. Susan Hennessy, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the last time we had this conversation was back in January and nothing has happened. Nothing. Everything is the same. Total standstill. <laughs> very calm. So, so a lot has happened. So I wanted to start with pretty much the question that we started with last time, which is what at this point can we actually say we know? What can we say we know about the ties between Donald Trump's campaign and Russia? So we do know more and, and in more firm ways than we did previously. Um, but the ball hasn't advanced as much as I think some of the, the president's opponents who thought maybe, you know, they were one big New York Times revelation away from, from the whole uh, administration crumbling. So in terms of highly, highly credible factual information, we do have new indictments. We have this indictment of the Internet Research Agency. This is the Russian group that really sets out with with a high degree of detail what exactly sort of the Russian active measures campaign consisted of. We have indictments and superseding indictments against Paul Manafort and his close associate Rick Gates. Gates has now pled guilty. Um, so we have a, a lot of sort of information. The most significant developments, I think, are actually pieces of information that confirm things that we've long suspected. So one area is this question about uh, the Trump Tower meeting. So this meeting between Russian government uh, agents or, or associates and, uh, and the Trump campaign officials, including Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Donald Trump Jr. Um, so for a long time, the question was this statement that was written on Air Force One that was a misleading statement, a, a, a lie, one might call it, that said that, no, this meeting was just about discussing adoptions. The White House had said again and again, including on the record, that President Trump had absolutely nothing to do with that, uh, with crafting that statement. In a letter uh, sort of released by his lawyers a few months ago, he actually acknowledged that not only was he involved in the statement, he dictated the statement. So I do think that the new pieces of information are starting us to move us further away from sort of that purely innocent explanation and more into, no, that there was pretty serious underlying conduct here, but we're not yet in the realm of criminal liability or clear criminal liability for the president himself. One of the things that it seems to me has happened is that on the one hand, we know with more certainty than we did that we're, there was criminal misbehavior and very, very strange ties between sort of Trump circle associates, Paul Manafort being being the big one, and, and Russia, but also just a lot of weird behavior, Michael Cohen and, and payoffs to porn stars. And then on the other hand, the case around obstruction of justice, around Donald Trump dictating that statement um, about the Trump Tower meeting. I mean, we already know a lot about, about Trump and Comey, but I think we know, frankly, even a little bit more now. So on the one hand, we seem to have – like there clearly was at least some fire where there was smoke, right? People are, people are going to jail. And on the other hand, there seems to have been a lot of obstruction around that fire. And, I, and I'm not saying it's not connective tissue to draw, but I think this is what some Republicans believe. Is this becoming – a, the cover-up is the real crime situation and because they don't really believe the cover-up is such a big deal, if there was no crime, then, you know, why are we wasting all this time? So I think it's possible for there to both be a very bad crime and also a very bad cover-up. And so we're a little bit conflating whether or not anybody committed serious crimes with whether or not the president of the United States committed right, serious yes. crimes. Sort of on the core offenses, we know that Paul Manafort, we, we now know that Paul Manafort was millions of dollars in debt to a Russian oligarch while he was acting as the president's campaign manager. Yeah, that but that seems fun. That he <laughs> offered to give that oligarch briefings about the, the sort of the campaign position positions in real time, that he was actively involved in changing the platform of the Republican National Committee uh, in ways that were uh, favorable to Russian interests, right? And, and that's only on top of the mountain of evidence regarding his various sort of financial crimes and, and other uh, crimes of moral torpitude, as you might say. So I don't think that we should at 
all agree on sort of this narrative of, oh, there's no underlying crime and now we're just in the realm of, of cover-up. No, there's there's lots and lots of possible underlying crimes. Then there's also steps sort of towards covering up those crimes that are themselves quite serious. And those are the areas in which the president himself or his direct inner circle appear to be more directly implicated. That brings up a couple things for me. But, but one of the things is let's go – before the investigation now, because I think one thing that we have gotten, not just from Mueller, but this part from Congress, is a better idea of one, what Russia did to interfere with the election. And on the other hand, I think both, uh, again, before the election and now with the, the Trump administration in office, we have a little bit more insight into what policy towards Russia from the Trump campaign and, and the Trump administration has been. So just on the substance of that, forgetting any question of crimes or wrongdoing, what did Russia do? What can we now say Russia's role in the 2016 election was? So I think we've had all this information for a really long time. So I would sort of caveat now with we now have even more reliability in the already highly reliable intelligence community assessment, which is that the Russian government ran an active measures campaign against the United States. It attempted in, in various different ways to actively infiltrate the Trump campaign, both through sort of a secondary or, or players that were further outside the orbit and very directly in the president's inner circle. Now, we don't know whether or not there was sort of a grand conspiracy on the on the Trump side, but we do know that every single time that we've heard of that the Russians reached out to offer something, uh, you know, dirt on Hillary Clinton, uh, potentially access to, to another trove of emails, uh, secret meetings, back channels, that the, the common theme of every single individual in, in Trump's orbit was yes. Yes, help us. If it's yes. what you say, I love it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and that really is, it occurs so many times and with such consistency that really to take a step back and see not only sort of the breadth of what, what the Russians engaged in, but that they found sort of a, a friendly, willing ear at absolutely every turn. I think that is the really astounding picture that has emerged that you kind of have to take a step back in order to appreciate it. And, and then on the other side of this, so we've talked a little bit about the altering of the platform, which Paul Manafort appears to have been involved in to, to make the platform friendlier to Russia. But we're now, you know, a year and change into the Trump administration. And Donald Trump has done, honestly, even given what he said in the campaign, more than I expected to undermine traditional American alliances with Canada, with South Korea, with Germany, with the, the range of European allies. And we're talking on the day when I, I believe the, the Trump uh, Putin summit in Finland, I think it is. Yes, Helsinki, once Helsinki again. Helsinki is getting established. The outcome of all this, that we are pulling ourselves closer to Russia and further from, I think it's fair to say, the NATO alliance. Whatever happened, it seems to me like an outcome beyond Vladimir Putin's wildest dreams. I think that's right. Donald Trump has shown an affection and loyalty to Vladimir Putin even against lots and lots of political pressure by his own party, by his own administration, in ways that I really don't think he's demonstrated that level of loyalty to any other individual outside members of his own family, and, and maybe even not then. You know, so we've seen his administration really, really slow rolling congressional sanctions. So when Congress sort of stepped up and said, it looks like you aren't taking this seriously enough, we're going to use our legislative power to say you have to impose sanctions. Just the executive branch, in some cases, just declining to impose them at all and sort of saying, well, we'll make us, um, you know, then taking a few minor moves like, like uh, designating individuals uh, uh, for Treasury Department sanctions. You know, we've heard about Trump's own staff, his, his White House staff, writing a memo to him saying, do not congratulate President Putin on his election because he was not elected in a free and fair election. And if the President of the United States says, congratulations, that is a signal that we are recognizing this election as being legitimate. What did Donald Trump do? He congratulated Vladimir Putin sort of over the, the all-caps objection. We've seen uh, the director of national intelligence, the new director of the National Security Agency, the CIA director, all Trump administration officials appointed by the president and in some cases quite loyal to him on Capitol Hill and in public continuing to raise the alarm about the Russia threat, that it's still present, that it's still significant, and yet we haven't seen the administration at the top level take it seriously at all. 
We've also had really bizarre stuff, like Trump saying that Russia should rejoin the G7 sort of out of nowhere. And at the same time, we're seeing reporting in uh, the New York Times, for example, about the increased rate of Russian infiltration, for example, into, into critical infrastructure systems. So everybody below the president, everybody on Capitol Hill appears to recognize this really, really significant threat. And yet the president really can't bring himself to muster even the mildest critiques or, or criticism. And to my mind, I, I cannot come up with a truly innocent explanation for this other than the president of the United States is so narcissistic, so egotistical, so unable to separate personal flattery from the interests of the United States that that he just doesn't care about the rest of this stuff. But even that I don't think is a sufficient explanation. I think something that happens in politics is that when an issue is with us for long enough, a kind of hydraulic process of polarization happens around it and we normalize to it on both sides. And we almost begin to lose sight of what it is we're talking about. We just get used to the information we already know and we get obsessed with what we don't know and we just lose sight of the big picture. One of the kinds of discipline I try to impose on myself in this story is what if I came to a cold? What if I, I came to it? This is the first time I'd ever heard of any of this and you were telling me about it. And so what I heard was that OK. During the campaign, we now know for sure that Russia had an active measures campaign to both infiltrate the Trump organization but also help the Trump organization out in a more broad sense. They masterminded a hack into the DNC um, email files and used those emails to embarrass the Clinton campaign. They were on social media putting out things meant to inflame racial tensions that they thought would help Donald Trump, which I think was actually quite clever. They repeatedly went to the Trump administration in different ways and said, hey, we can help you out. And every time they did, their contact in the Trump administration said, I would love to take that meeting. I would, if it's what you say, I love it. And then amidst all this, the Trump administration and campaign did make the RNC platform friendlier to Russia. They did come into office and act not just friendly to Vladimir Putin but unfriendly to the traditional NATO alliance. They did fire the FBI director who was running an investigation into it. If you just told me all that, if I heard this and it wasn't about America, it was about France or Canada or England or Russia or just somewhere else, I would say, oh, yeah, this story is clear. Like I would not have a second question about what was going on here. I mean obviously there are details yet to be filled in. But there's a way in which so much has now been proven and so much is now understood and the story in its totality looks so bad that – I think the only reason people are not in the streets is that it has this drip, drip quality that acclimates us and, and, and lets us forget the big thing and just focus on the narrow thing we just found out every day. It just – when I step back, it just seems so bad. I think that's right. And and sort of to this point, right, you, you, you mentioned a couple times the Trump organization and, and really you mean the Trump campaign. I do, yeah. And the reason that's significant, to keep it clear, is because there is potentially really, really significant separate criminal conduct on both sides, right? We have an organization uh, or an investigation and lawsuit into the Trump organization. We have a, a New York attorney general's investigation into the Trump foundation. So we have the Trump foundation. We have lawsuits and investigations into the Trump campaign. Uh, we have an obstruction investigation into the Trump White House. And so uh, we have so many threads of sort of, of, of inquiry and, and, and possible criminality and, and that sort of in the most benign explanation, really astoundingly poor judgment, um, that it's, it's hard to keep it all straight. And, and the common thread through all of this is Trump. You know, I, I agree with sort of, uh, uh, you know, your hypothesis here. I think one thing that we see uh, happening, and, and I do think it's an, an, it's an intentional choice and a strategic choice on the part of the president and his allies in Congress to try and center the discussion around legality and illegality. Legality. These are really, really complex questions. In what manner can the President of the United States obstruct justice? Whether or not an individual act within his Article II power versus a course of conduct can qualify as obstruction of justice. Whether or not the Justice Department can indict the President. Right? These are all things that are really, really complex and murky constitutional issues. And so I think that they understand that that is the ground on which they are strongest because attempting to fight it out on the facts alone is so incredibly damning to the president. They really have very, very successfully shifted the focus such that the question teed up to the American people is, did it clearly violate the law 
with the embedded assumption of if it didn't clearly violate the law and it didn't violate the law in a way that he can actually be held accountable in a criminal court, that somehow it's acceptable. And that leaves so much on the table of just really astonishingly bad conduct. I think this is one of the most important points I've heard anybody say on this, and and it feels so true to me. You know, my my next question for you is going to be that the goalposts in all this feel like they have moved so far that if you just told me a couple of years ago that we would have this pattern of factual information, I would say, oh, my God. (laughs) That at this point, I no longer even feel like I know what bar we're trying to clear for anything to have consequences at all. Right. Like I, I, I no longer feel like there's any clear answer to the question of like, what is it that is being looked for? I mean, really. except what you say, because I think there's this way in which people have gotten disempowered around this. They're waiting for some piece of information to come out that triggers in a mousetrap style way, like the long arm of the law to come out and solve this problem for them. This is no longer something I think where people are viewing it as we the people are the tribunal and like we are assessing a pattern of conduct to see if it is politically okay with us. It's now become this like we are waiting for some deus ex machina who like Robert Mueller calls down with the correct incantation and then the problem gets solved. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think if you just sort of track the Trump tweet defenses, right, it began with no connection to Russia, no contact with Russians. He'd never met a Russian in his entire life. Then it went to no collusion, no collusion. Then it went to no successful collusion, right? Maybe we tried, but it didn't work, right? And so the ability to just sort of shift the narrative here, peppered with just astonishingly brazen lies, you know, reconstructing that timeline is significant. I do think, though, you know, the ultimate sort of accountability here is going to be the political one. And so to the extent that there is the external force that is potentially game-changing here, I don't think it's a Robert Mueller report. I think it is the midterm elections. So let me come back. Let me try to pull something out in that, though, because it's a place I struggle and have discomfort. Your point that the real accountability here is a political one seems true to me. And on the other hand, when you get into that space, when you say that the the real consequences here are political, well, then you get into a question really it's of political tactics. Maybe when you pull it, and I believe this to be true, healthcare is a stronger issue than Russia, right? I think that's correct. And so if what you're trying to do is impose a political cost on Donald Trump or more to the point if you're a Democrat, what you're just trying to do is win elections, maybe the answer is leave this Russia stuff to the side. It, it, it fires up the Trump base. It fires up some um, bad parts of your own base where, where people get sort of too excited and, 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 and they start making points that, that don't actually make sense or they begin to uh, bring up the specter of impeachment, which you think is a political loser. And so actually, if the consequences, if all we are talking about is what is the best strategy to win an election, then maybe there are never any consequences around this Russia stuff at all. And in fact, the precedent is that there are no consequences for this obstruction of justice, for, again, the pattern of behavior and possible cooperation or at least openness to cooperating with a foreign power trying to influence an election. There's a way in which the argument that the real consequences are political is both unambiguously true in my view, but is also a little bit dangerous because then it does seem to me that what you're saying is the president is not above politics, but maybe they are above the law. Maybe they can just obstruct justice. They've got enough friendly media and enough allied partisans in Congress who want to make sure they get to make Supreme Court picks. Then there really is nothing that is institutionally protecting the rule of law. I think what you're saying might be descriptively accurate as to the politics. I'm making a little bit of a different point when I say sort of the the remedy as a political accountability. So on the walls uh, at the CIA building at Langley, um, there's a biblical verse that says, then ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I, I think that we have to approach the politics of this grounded in a commitment to facts and information. And when the executive branch, when our traditional fact-finding mechanisms are not functioning, either because the constitutional question surrounding the president impedes the courts from being able to render these judgments, or the executive branch itself is unable to overcome a president that doesn't want to respect sort of norms of traditional law enforcement independence, then the only way to actually get the truth or facts or information is, is through 
Congress and through Congress's constitutional right and obligation to engage in fact-finding and oversight. And that's why I think we should think of it as political, as a matter of just practical reality, because to me, the midterm elections are not, uh, it's not necessarily a, a referendum on Trump. I, I mean, it might be, but I sort of, I leave that to other people that are uh, uh, more knowledgeable and sort of equipped to make those judgments. For me, I care about whether or not the House flips, because it removes the subpoena power from Devin Nunes, and it hands the subpoena power to Adam Schiff. And I believe that he will use that power to unearth more facts. And so the ultimate ultimate question here is not just the question of impeachment, but also the question of a serious congressional inquiry. And that's where I think that, look, when the members of the president's own party control Congress, they only meaningfully investigate the president when they are worried about losing their own personal seats or when they are worried about losing control of Congress. And so those are the, those are whenever I look at sort of the failure and really the breakdown that we're seeing right now of those institutional accountability mechanisms, I see that as sort of the only reparative feature such that we can finally get back to a commitment to sort of that fact-finding truth that is supposed to be embraced and valued by both parties, at least theoretically, and underlies so much of how our system is supposed to be operated. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. But I want to call out what you said there for how depressing it actually is, <laughs> right? Because the way you just described the American political system is not the way the American political system was set up. The way the American political system was set up was that one of the ways executive wrongdoing would be punished, unearthed, and also constrained is that it would be checked by the independent ambition of Congress, right? I mean we, we have checks and balances in the system. And to say that – the president can functionally do whatever he or she wants so long as their party controls Congress. To say that accountability in our system only operates in periods of divided government, that accountability is a subsection of party competition, not a feature built into the structure of our government, is to say that one of the features of the government that we teach children about in civics class, one of the features of the government that we honor, that the founding fathers thought they built in the system, has failed. And like that's a huge vulnerability to the entire system. So I I completely agree with this. And I actually think that the current situation is sort of the final indictment of kind of, you know, the, the federalist society theory of, uh, of how governance works. And that is that whenever you take sort of a strong unitary executive theory, a, a sort of a Hamiltonian vision of energy in the executive, um, the defense against things like a powerful Congress or sort of traditional checks on the executive branch have been, it's not that we oppose the check. 
it's not that we don't believe in accountability. We believe that the political accountability is the appropriate accountability here. And so what we actually see occurring in practice is this formal structure by which every other possible accountability mechanism is batted off as the inappropriate one. And then whenever it all reduces down to sort of this political check, the the ultimate democratic expression, we see it fail. And so I think actually, you know, sort of the, the travel ban case that we saw earlier this week is a really sort of interesting expression of that and one that we might end up seeing if there is sort of ultimately litigation related to the president on Russia. And that's this notion of we are going to extend executive deference and and deference to the president's statements and the Department of Justice's representations even when the president tells us that he's lying, even when the president tells us, no, it's a Muslim ban, as long as DOJ uses the magic words and says, no, 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 we have a rational basis for this, the court isn't going to go further. And so I do think we are seeing a systemic breakdown. Can you draw out what you just said? Um, if you've not been following that case as, as closely as you have, and, and I've done some reporting on it, I think what you just said is very important. And I'd like you to just slow it down. And, and what happened there? Yeah, so— uh, And what, what happened there? What were its implications for executive power? Right. So the Supreme Court this week ruled 5-4 to uphold the what is known as the travel ban or the Muslim ban. It's important to understand that it's actually a travel ban 3.0. So we had travel ban 1.0, 2.0, and now 3.0, which is a much more watered-down version. There are a lot of different complex legal questions in that case. But, but the question here and the, and the question that was before the court was when the president of the United States expresses in his own words that he is motivated by racial or religious animus. So he says, I am enacting this immigration policy because I want to prevent Muslims from entering the country. And he says that clear of day. He says it multiple times. And then the Department of Justice offers a different reason for that. They say, no, this is within the president's appropriate authority regarding immigration. This has a real security rationale. And then the president, again and again, even after those filings, not only does not disavow his statements, but makes them again and reaffirms them. Whether or not the court, which traditionally extends deference to the executive branch, right, says, well, we're going to believe what you say. We're going to sort of examine the facial representations uh, that, that you're making about why you're doing this. Whether or not they're allowed to look beyond sort of the pure formal actions at what the president is saying. And so what the court decided was, no, they are going to continue to extend traditional national security deference to the executive even in the face of blatant, open contradiction by the executive himself. And so that case really is an example of elevating sort of legal formalism above the plain facts. And and that is something where Trump really has been able to quite strategically and shrewdly play institutional commitments to these sort of deeper principles against the very institutions themselves. And so it's allowed him to get away with things and and get away with things really brazenly and openly that I think even three years ago we we would have said was impossible. You keep using and everybody keeps using the word deference. And I looked at that opinion and to me the correct term, the term we would use if we were not speaking within legal niceties is willful ignorance. The court decided to extend an act of will to ignore everything that Donald Trump had said motivated that policy. And they were going to choose to ignore that and instead only listen to the things Donald Trump's lawyers were telling the court that were specifically designed to make the court accept the policy. Yeah, so the the phrase that Justice Sotomayor in her dissent comes to again and again is blindness. And and so I do think that that is the word that sort of captures what occurred in, in this particular case, and it also captures what is going on in Congress writ large. And that is blindness to sort of the plain evidence. And I think willful ignorance is right, right? A, a knowing intentional commitment to not seeing what is apparent and obvious. You made an interesting point a second ago that one of Donald Trump's talents is as somebody who does not care about the formalities of the system and so operates with very little respect for them, he's actually quite good at 
using the formalities of the system against the system, right? He operates outside of the rules and demands everybody else follow the rules and that that gives him a, a kind of interesting advantage as these plays go on because we work in a system where there is a good reason to have executive deference. We work in a system where there are reasons that we want to be able to trust that, say, the information coming out of the White House is broadly accurate. We work in a system where Congress does want to work with the executive to get things that they agree on done so that the, the country can keep moving forward. And it does seem to me to be that what Donald Trump has figured out is that he can leverage the parts of the system everyone wants to keep working in order for the system to let him do the things that he wants to do over on the side and not bother him too much about them. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot um, in the aftermath of, of Kennedy resigning, that now Donald Trump will have at the very least two vacancies that he will fill on the Supreme Court. If you're a Republican, that is, by the way, as many as Barack Obama had in his entire eight years in office and Donald Trump has had it in two years and under well, two years. Well, he had three. But I'm sorry, he had three. Was sorry. denied it. But he was denied it, right. That's a better way to put that. The bet paid off. And what Donald Trump has sort of understood is that as long as he's giving the tax cuts and the Supreme Court justices and all, all, all the rest of it, the other stuff they will protect him from or he's on some level even allowed to do. The culture war, the unbelievable way that he acts as president, the personal feuds he, he pushes, um, some of the corruption that goes on uh, beneath the system. And that that seems to me to be a, a dangerous place that we've been pushed into. I think that's true. Um, we don't know how history will be written of all this time period. But but I am more and more convinced that one of the principal villains of this story will end up being Mitch McConnell. Because I think that if you look at who really placed bets here, bets that really, really paid off, uh, he is the person that did so. And, and that's not just with sort of the refusal to confirm uh, Merrick Garland, but with sort of going back to the Russia investigation – the real moment of inflection here is when the Obama administration goes to Congress, goes to the Gang of Eight, lays out their evidence for sort of this Russian campaign against the United States before the election takes place, the moment in which it was actually possible to inform the American people of what was going on, and a moment in which they were going to be empowered to make a choice, Mitch McConnell made clear to the administration that he would consider that a partisan move uh, and effectively deterred them from informing the American public. I do think that Trump, he operates differently than a McConnell who wields the institutions quite well in that Trump actually reveals the underlying flaws in, in the idea themselves. And so we have this concept of, you know, unitary executive, and there's supposed to be accountability in that, right? If you can do all of it, if the president can do all of it, then he's responsible for all of it. But Trump has advanced this narrative of a deep state that works against him. His cabinet members don't even say the same thing. So we can't figure out what exactly the administration's policy is. He's actually co-opted Congress to work with him against his own executive branch. So if we look at these sort of pretextual and, and frankly bizarre fights that are occurring out of the House in the information they are demanding of the Department of Justice, information that they know the Department of Justice and, and Rod Rosenstein in particular is going to refuse to give to them. They're making this request with the intention of Rod Rosenstein refusing to give them to them so that they can then offer that up to the president himself as a reason to fire Rosenstein. And so we are seeing a sort of an alignment and a decoupling of any sort of commitment to institutional roles and checks and balances into really just sort of a plain team sport. And our institutions are, they're just not designed to function under these conditions. So let me make the counter argument Mitch McConnell makes here, which is people keep saying this. And yet over there is Bob Mueller. He's not fired. He's been able to do his work. It's just continuing on. And that there's an investigation ongoing every day that has not yet been impeded. And so the system is working the way it should be. Which I, I think a lot of the theory that this is not all broken ends up relying on the idea that Bob Mueller is going to act or can act, is somehow empowered to act as the institution's avenging angel, right? If something really has gone on that is beyond the pale, Bob Mueller will somehow fix it. And so I think it's a good time to ask, 
What are the Bob Mueller endgames that you see here? What power does Bob Mueller have and what power doesn't he have? Yeah, so I, I do think that the narrative of sort of Mueller is going to save us all uh, is is a wrong one, and that people should uh, should adjust their expectations accordingly. So, um, you know, Mueller does have different ways that he's going to be able to inform the public. So the the most fundamental way is through criminal indictments, and we've seen that thus far. When he thinks that he can prove beyond a reasonable doubt criminal conduct in a court of law, he asks for a grand jury indictment, and, and that indictment is made public. Um, so that's I think the principal way by which information is going to come out. That is because I think that uh, Mueller likely believes that he himself is not able to indict the president, right? So I think there are open legal questions about whether or not the president can be indicted. But I think it's relatively clear that the only person whose views really matter here, which is Bob Mueller, that he believes he's bound by this DOJ precedent on the question. So the other mechanism is the issuance of a report. The uh, regulations that Mueller is operating underneath uh, do uh, require him to provide a confidential report to Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein will likely make the decision about whether or not to make that report public, whether or not to refer that report to Congress. But we don't necessarily know the nature of what Mueller's report might look like. So it might be something more like what we saw DOJ produce in in the Watergate scandal, in which they really just laid out the bare facts. And and the facts alone were, were sufficiently damning, but they laid out the facts and they, they put the evidence all together and then they kind of dumped it over to Congress. We, I think, probably won't, but I suppose in theory could see something like the Star Report, which is a very long indictment that includes legal theories, right? It's sort of, it's the argument of why the special counsel, in that case, the independent counsel, uh, believes that the president has violated the law and thus should be impeached. I think the most likely thing is that we're going to see something in between. I don't think there's any guarantee that the American people or even Congress are going to necessarily see that report. I think it's more likely that Congress itself gets to see it. But there are other mechanisms by which Bob Mueller might convene a special grand jury or just say to hell with it all and and release a public report sort of in in the public interest. But that is really at odds with how Bob Mueller traditionally has comported himself. And it is a little bit at odds with sort of, I guess, the lessons of the past last two years, starting with James Comey's decision to depart from DOJ precedent and guidelines. Uh, You know, and I think Mueller is likely to really take a very, very conservative approach here. And and that's why I, I don't think that he is necessarily going to unearth lots and lots of new information. Now, I don't know that that matters because I think we already have all the information we need. And so I do sort of ask myself, well, Even if Bob Mueller did release a report, what new piece of information would actually sort of change the calculus here? What could possibly be worse than what we've already seen? And short of a tape-recorded conversation of Donald Trump speaking Russian to Putin, I I don't know what that would be. It's sort of right we're in the realm of the absurd. And so that's why I think this focus on whatever Mueller ultimately produces is it's wishful thinking because we don't know what he's going to produce. And kind of even if he produces the absolute worst things for the president himself, the likelihood that that actually changes the situation that we're currently in is limited I do think it's worth noting that Donald Trump is he has a playbook that he's operating by with regards to how what he's doing with this investigation. He's attacking Bob Mueller personally. He's attacking the integrity of the investigation in order to create the conditions that it actually doesn't matter what that ultimate report says. That he, to his base, to members of Congress's base, he has already delegitimized it such that, that it doesn't matter what comes out. And that is not the playbook of Richard Nixon. That is the playbook of Bill Clinton and the Starr investigation. And it was incredibly effective there. And and so I think that people who are shocked that it's so effective here are a little bit missing some of the lessons of relatively recent history and, and not necessarily Republican history. So all that is true. And um, according to Morning Consult's polling, Mueller, the special counsel, now has a 53 percent unfavorable rating, which is up 26 points from just July, right? (laughs) From July of 2017. So that's a, a lot. But isn't what you just said then game over? If the reality of the situation 
we already know basically everything we need to know. We already know a tremendous amount. And yet we just keep moving the goalposts until we know something else that somehow creates some deus ex machina, indictment, something, right? I, I feel like people, when you ask them this, there is something, but they don't know what it is, something that should happen. The system is supposed to act to protect itself, but in fact, it doesn't. So we already know a lot. People keep demanding we know more. Bob Mueller, at some point, he might indict more people around Donald Trump, but he's probably not going to indict Donald Trump. He may release a report, but probably only to Congress and likely to a Congress that is Republican or heavily Republican. And this is all coming in a context where the Republican Congress and the Republican Party do not trust and have already agreed with Donald Trump to delegitimize Mueller. If you put that together as a structural view of the situation, then isn't the answer of that, we are just where we are. This is where we're going to be and we'll see what happens in the 2018 and 2020 elections. But people thinking there's some other end game to unfold here are just setting themselves up for disappointment. So I don't think I agree with that. I do think that there is real value in continuing this investigation and ensuring that we really robustly support and uh, demand lawmakers defend and that our institutions continue to defend the independent law enforcement function here, in part because there are, uh, while I'm not necessarily uh, convinced that there's new facts that might come out, there is new actions that might occur that could still be game-changing. Um, and I think one of the most substantial ones is if Donald Trump sits down in a room with Robert Mueller and lies to him, and I think that his lawyers are terrified of that possibility, he does not seem to be able to help himself, even whenever he sort of knows the stakes. And so I do think that things in the nature of New, shocking uh, breaches of his oath of office conduct, things like lying and perjury, things like pardoning a, a member of his own family, right? That he, you know, he really likes the unrestrained pardon power, but you know, if he goes too far there, I, I do still think that there are things here that might really change things and they're not outside the realm of possibility. You know, the other thing here is that you never quite know what's going to catch on. And I think that that is one of the lessons really of the past week with the border images crisis and, and sort of these family separations. And that's that it's hard to predict what is the image, what is the story, what is the narrative that is going to break through the partisan rancor and, and really mobilize people and mobilize even the GOP against Trump himself. For that reason, we have to sort of temper our uh, or, or caveat our, our pessimism here because you just never know. So do you think that Donald Trump is going to end up sitting in a room testifying to Bob Mueller? I do. I personally cannot imagine Mueller concluding this investigation without speaking to the president. It just seems inconceivable to me. Mueller, I think, pretty clearly has the law on his side. So essentially, there are two ways that Mueller might interview the president. He can have a voluntary interview where Trump agrees to sit down, or he can subpoena him uh, to a grand jury and, and uh, interrogate him that way. Um, and so really what we're seeing right now is sort of this fight about whether or not there's going to be a voluntary interview. And, and the reason why it's sort of to the benefit of both sides to have a voluntary interview is it benefits. Donald Trump to have a, a voluntary interview because he knows, or at least his lawyers know, that they probably lose on the question of law. The operative precedent, um, which relates to Richard Nixon about whether or not you can subpoena a sitting president, it relates to sort of uh, tapes, so actual documents, so it's not directly on point. But, but the legal logic is relatively clear that if they litigate this all the way up, the president probably loses. So Donald Trump's lawyers at least have to realize that this is probably a losing game long term. Two, if you decide to sit down to have that voluntary interview, you can actually limit the scope of what you agree to talk about. It also is to Bob Mueller's advantage to have a voluntary interview because he wants to spare himself the, the very long uh, uh, time and, uh, and financial expense of having prolonged litigation around a constitutional question like whether or not he can subpoena the president. So I do think the incentives pretty strongly here 
are going to force both sides to the table. And the reason why I just don't think Trump can get away with not sitting down to a Mueller interview is because it seems relatively clear that Mueller is intensely interested in the question of obstruction of justice. And the serious obstruction questions here reduce down to the president's mental state, why he did what he did. He clearly had the authority to do what he did. What Mueller needs to understand is whether or not there was a corrupt purpose underlying that. And so the only person that can really speak to that is Donald Trump himself. Now, whatever answer Donald Trump gives, if it contradicts written evidence or some other record, and and mind you, he doesn't necessarily know what Bob Mueller knows, then he might get himself in in really, really serious trouble. But as the president and sort of his supporters complain about this investigation going on and on and on, if they really wanted it to be wrapped up, they'd sit down with Mueller and say, let's get it over with. But game that out with me. So I recognize that there is a difference between lying and perjury. But Donald Trump lies all the time. He is lying constantly. It is an understood part of his character that he is constantly saying untrue things. And Republicans in Congress, who would be the ones who would have to act on a perjury um, violation from Donald Trump, Republicans in Congress overwhelmingly and time and again excuse Donald Trump's lies. I mean, they say things at this point that are that are almost comical. Oh, you know, uh, sometimes I mean, I've heard them say sometimes the president says things that are untrue, or you know, I don't I don't think that's a true statement from the president. But it's quite clear to me they don't believe that Donald Trump being truthful is an impeachable offense. And also on the other side of this, people I think sometimes forget it, but the main impeachable offense that the Republicans charged Bill Clinton with having committed was perjury. And Democrats did not believe, and I, you know, I think somewhat understandably, that lying about whether or not he had had sexual relations with um, Monica Lewinsky was a impeachable offense. And so it's not like Democrats' hands are, are completely clean on this too. So I do wonder when I, I see people looking at the final showdown between Mueller and Trump as a place where this might all get put together, for what? To, to learn that Donald Trump lies or even that Donald Trump lies under oath or even that sometimes presidents lie under oath? And then, again, I I keep coming back to Donald Trump went to Lester Holt and said, just to be clear, while my Department of Justice says we fired James Comey because of the Hillary Clinton investigation, the reason I did it was because of the Russia investigation. I mean, just so you all know, I did it to stop his investigation of Trump and Russia because there's nothing there and people should stop looking into it. And so there's part of me that says Donald Trump already admitted to what I would think of as obstructing justice. And he's a constant liar. So what is the information that a Comey-Trump showdown could bring that would change anything? So I think there's a few things. One, I I do think there's a substantial difference and a substantial difference even in Congress between lying to the public and lying under oath. One is a crime and one is not. And actually part of Donald Trump's defense of the lie he told about that Trump Tower meeting is that this was, quote, a private matter with the New York Times. You're allowed to lie to the media and that's not a crime, right? So they're asserting this as a defense. Um, Lying to a federal investigator is a crime. And Donald Trump, he, he does appear unable to resist uh, uh, lying, Um, you know, but Rudy Giuliani and his other sort of supporters have used this term perjury trap. You know, look, he, uh, in order to- Such a funny line. (laughs) Right, as if Donald Trump had, and they're using You know how to not fall into a perjury trap. (laughs) Right. Right, so it's, it's, they're they're using the term a little bit differently. So ordinarily a perjury trap is whenever um, the government sits down to have an interview with you, they don't actually need any information. They just want to see if you're going to lie, right? So that's sort of the classic perjury trap. What they're trying to use it as is to sort of suggest that the President Trump is going to be tricked into lying, um, right? But, you know, to commit perjury, you have to knowingly make a false statement, and it has to be about a material fact. So these sort of the other things things that Donald Trump might lie about or that he might get confused. None of that is perjury. Um, And so I do think that that is different in kind and might potentially sort of gain legs in a way that is significant. The other thing is, look, um, those 49 questions that Mueller reportedly wants to ask Trump. Now, keep in mind, those clearly came from Trump's attorneys and not from Mueller himself. But to the extent we believe that they loosely represent the areas that the the two parties have dis- 
discussed. Um, he's also clearly interested in things like the Trump organization and potential financial wrongdoings, what Donald Trump said to Michael Flynn and whether or not he had any knowledge or, or made any direction about this call with Ambassador Kislyak, right? Did you make representations that we were going to lift sanctions? So there are all of these little open factual questions that I think a lot of people deep down assume the answer. But it's a little bit like sort of Trump dictating this Air Force One statement. You know that's the answer. You believe that's the answer. But there's something really different about the president admitting to it. And I think that there are a lot of really, really damning facts that are out there that we might all assume is true, but places Trump to an incredibly difficult position which is he either lies and commits perjury and suffers all the consequences of that, or he acknowledges something and confesses to it in a way that almost certainly is going to reach the American public, incredibly contrary to his political interests. And so that's why I think they're so afraid of having this interview. And it's one of the reasons why I don't think Mueller's walking away from the table without it. What about the pardon power? Donald Trump has said that the presidential pardon power is basically unlimited, that he can self-pardon. But of course, he doesn't need to do it because he's done nothing wrong. I mean, it's interesting because Donald Trump's view of the law is that he is basically unconstrained by the law, but it doesn't matter because he's also morally uh, innocent. And so, you know, he's he's got ultimate power to not be held accountable for anything, but there's also nothing to hold him accountable for, so don't worry about it. But Donald Trump could perjure himself or I think another likely version of this is that Jared Kushner or someone very close to Trump could end up in genuine legal trouble in a way that Trump can't abide and he moves to pardon. Yeah, so I think there's a couple different ways to think about uh, sort of Trump's potential uses of pardons here. So I, I do think he's sort of infatuated with the pardon power because it really is sort of the way in which he can be most like a king, which is which is really what he wants to be and, and enjoys. Um, so I think the first thing to note is um, he really does have an unchecked pardon power. This is this is a vast power, and so with respect to any person other than himself, if he issues a pardon. The pardon cannot be later challenged. Um, and there are other legal scholars that will say different things, but that really is the broadly accepted view, right? If he pardons you, you're good. Now, that doesn't mean that the pardon itself can't qualify itself as an obstructive or criminal act. And so that is one thing that I haven't seen in the discussion of if Donald Trump, for example, pardons Michael Flynn, whether or not if he does so for corrupt purposes to defend himself in an investigation, if that itself could qualify as an obstructive act, right? So it's sort of like the quandary related to the firing of Jim Comey. He clearly has the raw constitutional authority to do it. But if he uses it for an improper purpose, can that qualify as a crime? And, and by the way, if he dangles it out in front of people in, in a sufficiently clear way, can that qualify as witness tampering? So I, I do think there are questions there. On sort of the question of the self-pardon, the president cannot pardon himself. I, I, you know, I, I know hypocrisy doesn't matter anymore, um, but Donald Trump has uh, treats this DOJ OLC opinion about that you can't indict a sitting president as an article of faith that is a religious document in the White House. Well, there is another OLC opinion, and that OLC opinion says incredibly plainly, no, of course the president cannot pardon pardon himself. The hypocrisy on its face that, you know, the OLC opinions they like, well, that's incredibly binding, but these other ones they're just going to ignore are pretty astonishing. Ultimately, when it comes to pardoning himself, and I think we have to think about this as probably a final act in office, even Donald Trump can probably not get away with pardoning himself and continuing to be in office. Ultimately, it's a gamble by Donald Trump because the way that the pardon power works is it's an affirmative defense. So the president pardons you. If somebody then later attempts to indict you or try you for a crime, you hold up the pardon as a defense. Now, for every other person in the world, they have really the strongest possible constitutional argument that they have a valid defense. 
but Donald Trump would have an untested constitutional argument. So this is not an area in which Donald Trump can just say, I can pardon myself. No, he could pardon himself, but the court would still ultimately be able to make the judgment about whether or not it would hold. And so that's why I don't think that that's a risk that ultimately Donald Trump is going to be willing to take. We've so far been talking about what Donald Rumsfeld would call the known knowns and the known unknowns. Now, there's this question within the Mueller investigation of the unknown unknowns. Um, And even here, I'll probably get into some known unknowns. Like, how much is he finding out about Donald Trump's business practices in other countries that we just don't know anything about and is going to become a big issue here down the road? Or the morning we woke up and Michael Cohen had been referred to a New York court because of what appear to be campaign finance violations at the very least, but the the Stormy Daniels payoffs, among other things, and you know potentially there are tapes, and maybe now Cohen is cooperating. What is out there, in your view, that people aren't focusing on that we don't really know anything about now, but that feel to you like things that in six months we could all be talking about? So I don't know any person who has worked with the criminal justice system in any capacity who does not believe that an investigation, a serious investigation of the Trump organization would not find evidence of substantial criminal wrongdoing. So that might be true or not true. I've just never met a person who had contacts with the justice system uh, that believed that to be the case. So I, I do think that Mueller knows an extraordinary amount that we don't. And, uh, and I, I really do think that people should understand that all these leaks that we're seeing in public even about Mueller's thinking, it is not his team. This has been one of the most leak-proof operations, astoundingly leak-proof operations that we've ever seen. Honestly, the only other uh, sort of similar institution that, that has managed to be this rock solid is the Supreme Court itself. So very little information is coming out of Mueller. And so take it all with a grain of salt, especially the stuff that is pretty clearly coming from defense attorneys. There is one area in which uh, Mueller does speak to the public. And in those court filings, which is where he puts it on record, he does leave these like tantalizing little tidbits. Like in in a recent filing, he said that there are multiple additional non-public lines of inquiry in this investigation. So that's Mueller's way of saying we are investigating lots of things that the public has no idea about. Um, And so I do think we have to assume that Mueller knows all kinds of things that we don't. Now, what we don't know is whether or not any of that is ultimately going to be surfaced whether or not it's going to meet the the sort of standards of Mueller thinking that he could actually prove it in court, right? That's a really, really different question, whether or not it meets the standards of what Mueller might refer to Congress. So I do think he knows a ton. I think the way to think about it is there's landmines everywhere here. And thus far, Trump has sort of managed to skirt them all. There's not just the Mueller investigation with Trump organization, Russia stuff, obstruction, a million different pieces. There's this New York attorney general. There's the Summer Zervos defamation suit. There's the DNC lawsuit against the Trump campaign, uh, the Russians and WikiLeaks. There are so many areas here. And so, you know, while I try and tamp down on this expectation that like we're one big revelation away from, from this all being over with, I do think that there is other really, really big stuff out there and stuff that, that might generate its own momentum in, in ways that have a, has a lot of consequence for this administration. I mean, it's funny because we've spoken here a couple times about the Clinton experience, and I think people often forget that Monica Lewinsky and that entire impeachment proceeding came out of the Whitewater investigation. In the end, what caught on with the public, what ended up imperiling the Clinton presidency, did not bring it down, but imperiling it was not what they were investigating, was not really, in my view, even related to what they were investigating. It was something completely different. Well, and then the lesson that Trey Gowdy knows, uh, which is that the Hillary Clinton email server was unearthed in the Benghazi investigation. So I do think that uh, at least the Clintons have learned this lesson well. Let me ask you one last question here before I let you go, because it's something that I struggle with on the other side of this. I think that if you're listening to this, it's pretty clear that I think Donald Trump has done a lot of things that are against the law and that there are real questions about the solidity of the system if there's no consequences for any of it. On the other hand, we have an exceptionally divided country. 
Bob Mueller is, as we noted, um, 53 percent unfavorable rating, extremely high unfavorable rating among Republicans. A lot of Republicans do believe there's a witch hunt against Donald Trump. The idea that the Mueller investigation is going to spin out into a bunch of unknown currently lines of inquiry going after the Trump organization, the idea of Summer Zervos becoming a big part of, of the narrative. I do wonder if any of this really gets further, right? If, if we do get into a place where, say, Democrats do win back Congress in the fall and then there's these real questions about what happens next as some of these shoes begin to drop. I do worry in a country where we have such unbelievably different views of the world, where we are so split off from each other in our view of what is true and who is innocent and who is juking the system and who is being victimized by it, what it would mean for our civic solidarity to have a genuine imperilment of the Trump administration. Do you think about this? Do you think about our ability to withstand such a thing? So I do think that impeachment is an act that sort of rips at the fabric of the United States. And so that's why I think it's a mistake for congressional Democrats to sort of throw the term around at all casually. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, some of the more responsible members really trying to hold that close to their chests. And, and my view of this is, is sort of one thing at a time. Listeners may uh, sense, uh, tend to, to sort of broadly agree with you that um, what Donald Trump has done, what we know he's done, what he has confessed to having done, already crosses the line into unacceptable conduct. And, and whether or not that's unacceptable as deemed by voters in an election or, or by Congress, I'm, I'm not sure. What I do know at this moment is that just because there is some group of people in the United States and even the president of the United States that is not committed to the truth and is not committed to institutional rigor and an obligation to pursue the truth, that doesn't mean we should abandon it. And I think that this is an important enough inquiry and, and not important enough because maybe it'll politically harm Donald Trump or, or lead to his impeachment, but important because it goes to the core tenets of our democracy. And because if someone was able to get away with the kinds of criminality and someone here being you know, not just Donald Trump, but the individuals who in some cases have confessed to committing crimes, um, that itself would be so incredibly damaging, you know, that it's really important that we do everything we can to ensure that this investigation is seen through to the end. Then once the investigation produces what it does, there's going to have to be another conversation and, and another uh, sort of decision and about where we go from here and what this information means. And there's going to be a million sort of um, political considerations, and, uh, and I don't even pretend to know what that might look like. But I do think that we should sort of put it to the side for now and, and just say that, you know, look, the way to resist an assault on law enforcement independence is to demonstrate how independent law enforcement can be, right? And that actually this symbolic value of the fact that our institutions have been able to resist even though we've seen all kinds of, of really profoundly damaging attacks, they are still fundamentally standing. That's kind of our only hope for returning back to a rule of law in a United States that is recognizable to us when Donald Trump is gone. And, and for those reasons, I, I tend to think it's, it's worth it for its own sake and, and kind of put the big giant political question of impeachment for, for a later day. So uh, the last question here is usually to recommend three books, which I made you do last time. So I won't do that again. But are there any articles, law review articles, essays, profiles, just pieces of journalism or legal analysis you've read that have helped you think about this that, that you think other people should read? So the sort of series of essays or the group of writing that has been most useful for me in my own thinking, and this is, of course, to log roll my own publication, is writing that uh, Bob Bauer has done in Lawfare. Um, so Bob Bauer is a former White House counsel to Obama, um, and he has been writing, I think, some of the most thought-provoking, fair, terrifying, but non-alarmist commentary 
about what we are seeing and the institutional interactions and and the ways things are working and not working. And that has been, you know, he's probably written a dozen articles at this point, but but those are the articles that I find myself coming back to months later to sort of see how the theory has played out and, and, and really has been a really useful articulation for me. Susan Hennessy, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Susan for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, the Ezra Klein Joseph Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.